3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and it's uh, Tuesday breakfast. Uh, It's the 16th of August. It's just clocked over to 7am and you're joined by me, Genevieve, Carnegie and Fung this morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Carnegie. Good morning, Fung. (laughs) How is everyone? How has everyone's uh, weekend and week been? Anything crazy happened? <laughs> I've been seeing a bit of Myth. Oh, yeah. I'm an international film festival, which has been good. I was just telling Fung earlier that I saw Triangle of Sadness on Sunday night, which was the headlining um, movie. Um, and it was, I don't know, with the headliner, I was like, yeah, it'll be like, it'll be good, but it might be a bit, you know, over-commercialized and whatever, but it was really funny. Mm. It'll, it, I would everyone needs to see it was really funny it interrogates um class um and like has this contrast of really exorbitantly rich people on this luxury boat and how they intermingle with like the car the crew of the boat and like it's interesting even like so the service people in the boat obviously they're all white and then the um there's like even how they structure the certain tiers of the boat, like um, at the bottom of the boat, the people that are not seen are people of color. And then the kind of like ta- the roles are uh, changed. I'm not going to give anything away. Mm, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it's really I'll good. I'll absolutely be watching. Yeah, yeah. My weekend was very different to yours, Jen. Um, my puppy, Konji, <laughs> had gastro. Oh, no. <laughs> so just like... Yeah, a common occurrence among small, young dogs. Mm. So that was fun. They can't handle it. They can't handle it. They're too small. (laughs) And also because they literally like anything that they see, they're like, I must eat that. Oh, God. (laughs) And then, of course, it's like, no, like you're still developing. So that was um, a fun 3 a.m., 4.30 a.m., 6 (gasps) a.m. Wake up early, early Sunday morning. So that was my eventful, eventful weekend. That yeah. is absolutely rough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but then you can't get too upset because you look at it. She's just so cute. She's and you're like, you know what? Cute. You could literally do whatever you want and I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll clean up your mess. Yeah. <laughs> I'll gladly clean it up. <laughs> gladly clean it up. All right. Should we go through what's coming up on the show this morning? Sure thing. Uh, so this morning we'll be starting at 7.15 speaking with Maeve Russick, who is from the University of Melbourne Student Union, and she's on the show this morning to talk to us about the motion they recently passed in solidarity with Palestine. Coming up at 7.30, we'll be speaking to Fiona Patton, MP, uh, about the Health Legislation Amendment Conscientious Objection Bill 
um, that was revealed in um, Vic Parliament under a fortnight ago. Um, after which, at about 7.45, we'll be speaking with a TAFE teacher at Swinburne, Alexandra Mavridis, who will be talking to us about um, what's happening at Swinburne at the moment. Staff are getting stood down with no pay for taking protected industrial action. And then just coming up at 8am, I'll be speaking with Claire Bridge and Shell DeStefano in the studio about an exhibition at Footscray Community Arts Centre called What I Wish I Told You. And then if we got time, because it's such a jam-packed show that's today. right <laughs> um we might play um some audio from indigenous rights radio where Letitia timas peterson talks about how indigenous women transfer knowledge and customs cool all right we'll be right back with the uh, latest news headlines after this announcement Music lovers rejoice. The magical Sierra Ferrell returns for a headline tour this October. Bringing a band and her unique style of old-time bluegrass and country music, they will be joined by the one and only Johnny Fritz plus the local Isles in the Drip for a huge night of good times at Thornbury Theatre on October 13th. Sierra Ferrell Band also playing at Menian Town Hall 14th of October and out on the weekend at Seaworks Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Alright, here are the news headlines for the 16th of August. So first up, students at University of Melbourne have successfully passed a motion um, called... Uh, yeah, a motion to stand with Palestine um, in solidarity with um, Palestine and BDS. So they've committed to solidarity with Palestine and call calls on the university to cut ties with um, with Israeli apartheid. They released um, a post yesterday that said that they commend. Um, and I quote: "The movers and everyone who spoke in favour standing up to lawfare attacks from liberal." Liberals and Zionists who want to cover up the reality of occupation, apartheid and ethnic cleansing that Palestinians experience daily. The student union um, is taking a bold stance um, and it's an important step in the struggle for Palestine. Um, And you'll be hearing more about this um, when Carnegie speaks with Maeve in about uh, a little under 10 minutes. Um, I also just wanted to quickly talk about Brittany Griner, who is the US basketball star who has been, it's been announced that um, she's going to be jailed for nine years in Russia on drugs charges. Um, Well, they've now appealed against her conviction for narcotics possession and trafficking, um, according to um, Brittany Griner's lawyer. Um, So they're saying that the conviction, um, uh, that the sentence was excessive and in other cases in similar cases defendants had received an average sentence of about five years with about a third of them being granted parole so um, the fact that Brittany Grant has been given nine has been deemed um, yeah really excessive. Um, So Miss Grander as most of you will know is a well-known WNBA player two-time Olympic gold medalist and was due to play for um, a Russian club in the in the America off-season, and she was arrested at Moscow Airport on February seven, uh, 17 after um, cannabis-infused vape cartridges were found in her um, luggage. 
So um, stay tuned to see um, what happens there. Uh, And in other news, uh, this is just coming off uh, the front page of The Age. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has ordered a search for documents authorising his predecessor, Scott Morrison, to take joint control over at least three key ministerial portfolios at the height of the pandemic in a secret arrangement that allowed the former leader to overrule the decisions of cabinet colleagues. The revelations over the weekend about the secret portfolios have blindsided former coalition ministers and also prompted the government to seek advice about the arrangements, constitutional legality and triggered legal action from a mining company accusing Morrison of bias for shutting down its offshore exploration permit. Albanese said Morrison had been running a shadow government that was, this is quoting, uh, unbecoming, cynical and just weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, contrary to the Westminster system, that's the best words that they can come up with, uh, weird. Um, he has asked the new secretary of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, Glyne Davis, to seek legal advice from Solicitor General. Um, so pretty uh, crazy stuff to think that the Prime Minister at the time was uh, having such executive control over so many different ministerial portfolios it's hard to i know this is like it's clearly happening so i maybe shouldn't be this shocked but it's hard to imagine that that happened like where Mm -hmm. was everyone yeah yeah distracted (laughs) like like, what's happening how can that possibly have just occurred yeah yeah (laughs) i saw that um anthony albanese in an interview yesterday said that um I think he was making a joke when he said, you know, maybe that's why we had all these issues with vaccines because um, the prime minister thought the health minister was doing it. The health minister thought the prime minister was doing it. But they were both Scott Morrison. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it is just a crazy thing to think of, but also not that crazy when you think of all the stuff that was going on at that time and still happens within governments. Yeah. All right, well, we might go to a quick announcement and then we'll uh, launch into our first conversation of the morning. Serrated tussock is an noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated program of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter.
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are going to play a track for you before we launch into our first interview this morning. Um, This song is by uh, Samoan and Camilla Roy artist Becca Hatch and it is called um, Without You. Where do I find you? Cause I've been searching far and wide Oh, I'm just sick of wasting time And babe, I wanna clear my mind, my mind Where do I find you? I'm calling for you now, can you hear me? I'm searching through the crowds, can you see me now? Can you see me now? Becca Hatch with uh, her song Without You. Uh, University of Melbourne Student Union, or UMSU, has passed a new motion where standing with um, Palestine and calling on the University of Melbourne to divest from Israeli apartheid. Um, This comes after an initial attempt at passing the motion, which was stopped by legal threats from pro-Israel lobby groups and pressure from university management. 
Maeve Rasek is a socialist and activist on campus at Melbourne Uni and off campus as well. She's been involved in movements for climate action, women's rights and queer rights and anti-racist activism, most recently as a part of the pro-Palestinian activism at Melbourne Uni. She's on the show this morning to talk about standing in solidarity with Palestine and the fight to pass this motion. Welcome to the show, Maeve. Hi, Kylie. Thanks for having me. Um, so can you just start by telling us a little bit about the motion that has just passed? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's important to start with a bit of background on Melbourne Uni's ties to Israel, because um, Melbourne unequivocally backs Israel in this apartheid. They have a partnership with Lockheed Martin, which has been um, one of the biggest arms manufacturers and suppliers to Israel since the 70s. And they have partnerships um, and sort of collegial relationships with various universities and academics in Israel. Um, so this is a motion that was originally put forward a couple of months ago by Palestinian activists and student unionists on campus, and it called for the uni to take part in the global movement for um, yeah, the BDS movement or the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against Israeli institutions and corporations that profit from Israeli apartheid. So it was calling for the uni to... Um, yeah, to not continue the partnership with Lockheed Martin and to cut ties with Israeli universities and academics. Um, and this was a motion that was passed through the student union a couple of months ago. It was voted for after, you know, open debate and discussion, and it was democratically passed by the elected union officials. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there was a lot of backlash um, from various pro-Israeli forces claiming that the motion was anti-Semitic um, and you also uh, faced a lot of pressure from the actual university management to not pass the motion um, or to backtrack on it. Um, how did UMSU fight back and eventually pass the motion? Yeah, so um, yeah, as, as you said, pretty immediately there was backlash against this. Melbourne Uni, um, you know, bureaucrats came out and management came out and said that the motion was anti-Semitic. And it stressed that it, you know, wasn't the official position of the university. Um, but the main backlash, or the most notable backlash, came from a um, student at Melbourne Uni, a Zionist student, um, who engaged pro bono lawyers and threatened legal action if the union didn't redact and apologise for the motion, um, claiming that it was outside the jurisdiction of the union and it wasn't representative of all students. Um, and again, this was a motion that had passed democratically through the union, as all other motions do. Yeah. Um, so it was a pretty direct attack on Palestinian activism. Um, and while the union did put, you know, some funds and allocations to fighting this effort, um, eventually that original motion was redacted. Um, so there's since been more Palestinian activism on campus, um, which has resulted in just yesterday a new motion was put up following some consultation processes with the broader student body on campus. Um, and that motion was once again passed after debate. Um, and yeah, it was passed actually with a higher vote than it was the original time. That's really good to hear. And I mean, you know, if somebody is hiring pro bono lawyers and really coming at you um, and claiming anti-Semitism, that's, that's a really difficult thing to actually fight back as a student union. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, 
one of the major things about it is that it just more broadly threatens the capacity of the union to function. It creates a sort of precedent that says if you have, you know, enough money, enough times, enough capacity to wage a legal attack against a motion that you disagree with, um, that that's going to be a pretty effective intimidation tactic against the union. Um, not just because of, like, you know, the legal cost of it, but because of the, the time and the energy which is being taken out of the union and put into this legal case. Um, you know, there's the potential for the union to lose. So it's a pretty massive um, attack that the union is facing. And I think, yeah, it, it does create this idea that what's passed through the union democratically by the elected officials of the student body can then be undone if you have the have the funds. So I think it's really important that this um, hasn't stopped the union from passing another um, motion in support of Palestine, despite the fact that there is still that threat of legal action. Absolutely. I think it's um, such an important precedent to set um, because you're exactly right. They, it's almost like a distraction from the actual fight and the actual messages that you're trying to you know, bring across. Um, you know, they kind of force you to concentrate on the other thing. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. In, in passing a motion that's in support of Palestine, you have this entire other issue raised of, you know, lawsuits and how the, um, how the union's going to respond to that rather than focusing on what the union can be doing to support Palestinian activists and, um, you know, do what it can to both sort of raise the public, you know, support of Palestine and um, put pressure on the uni to participate in the global um, BDS movement. Absolutely. Um, so instead of, you know, being intimidated and backing down, UMSU actually organised Israeli Apartheid Week um, at Melbourne Uni, which ended up having pretty big crowds um, um, and was one of the biggest kind of on-campus anti-apartheid event that's happened in quite a while. Can you tell us a bit more about the events, especially the forum that happened at the end? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so Students for Palestine on Melbourne Uni organised the, the Apartheid Week. Um, there was a speak-out that happened on campus earlier in the week um, that, you know, was pretty public and broad and drew the attention of a lot of different students, and it was a pretty... Um, pretty big and successful speak-out. Um, and then, yeah, later in the week, there was a, a forum discussing why it's important to oppose Israeli apartheid. Um, so it was a really important discussion about the sort of the history of Israeli apartheid, you know. Why do we refer to it as, as apartheid? You know, what does this conflict, as it's often referred to as, um, what's it actually look like? So, you know, going through the history of Israel's... Um, actions against Palestinians, you know, uh, forcefully removing people from their homes, um, a pretty active project of settler colonialism. Um, yeah, home dispossessions, uh, what has been regular attacks on the Gaza Strip and, um, you know, regularly tens of people dying at Israeli attacks. You know, this isn't, this isn't a conflict. This is quite clearly an oppressor and an oppressed. So part of the forum was setting up this um, political background of, of what um, the apartheid actually looks like, but also talking through how student unions have um, historically been able to play a part in fighting against um, oppressive and more broad social um, 
yeah, more more broad social movements. So like South African apartheid or the Vietnam War, students were really crucial in fighting against these things and um, fighting on the side of the oppressed. And similarly, um, BDS motions in support of Palestine have been sort of gaining traction and gaining a global movement. So recently, similar motions have passed at uh, University of Sydney, ANU, Harvard, um, so this is something that is a it's a growing movement of students being in support of BDS motions. And yeah. so the forum sort of talked through this and also more broadly, like what what can be done? How can we actually do more than pass BDS motions and, you know, eventually have a have a movement that's capable of really materially changing what's happening in Palestine and ending Israeli apartheid? Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. A lot of, you know, grassroots activism that's made global change does start at universities, um, you know, with students. Um, How can students kind of at other organisations across um, Australia follow in your footsteps and get involved in the fight against Israeli apartheid? Yeah, I think one one of the great things is that a lot of different unions around the country already have been doing this. Um, yeah, like I like I said, University of Sydney, ANU, um, and I know it's on on the cards at various different unions around the country that um, there've been discussions of for a couple of years now, but more recently because of the you know media attention that the Melbourne Uni motion has gotten, um, it, it's being brought up and it's um, there's discussions around trying to pass similar BDS motions and um, stand in solidarity with Palestinians. I think the most important thing you can do is just try and organise something or put forward a motion or, you know, get involved with activists on your campus. Um, there's activists and socialists on campuses all across Australia um, constantly fighting around um, issues of oppression and exploitation and imperialism. Um, and I think just reaching out to activists and to people organising for Palestine all across Australia is kind of the first step in um, putting forward similar motions or standing in solidarity with Palestine. Absolutely. Um, And if people wanted to read the motion that UMSU has just passed, where can they go to find that? Uh, There's access to it from the um, UMSU website and uh, notes from council. Amazing. Um, Maeve, that's all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and um, taking us through this uh, I just want to echo your words. Um, people should definitely get involved with their unions and um, you know, find the activism happening on campus or wherever you are and stand in solidarity with Palestine and um, yeah, like really put pressure on these big organisations to actually divest from really, really harmful partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Carnegie. Thanks, Maeve. So that was uh, Maeve Rusick talking to us about UMSU's motion standing with Palestine and calling on the University of Melbourne management to cut ties with Israeli apartheid. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced, 
ISJA Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on ISJA Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7.27am. We're going to go to a track now by Tuesday Breakfast favourite, Georgia Mack. Uh, this is a track of Georgia's called Pleaser.
And that was the song Pleaser by Georgia Mack. Two weeks ago, Reason Party leader and MP Fiona Patton unveiled the Health Legislation Amendment Conscientious Objection Bill um, as State Parliament resumes sitting after the winter break. Fiona Patton joins us now to tell us more about this bill. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, Before we speak about this bill, um, here on 3CR Breakfast, we've had many guests on the show to discuss the impact of Roe v. Wade being overturned here in Australia, including um, Dr. Susie Allenson and Dr. Tanya Penevik, just to name a few. Um, I just wanted to hear from you in terms of your take on how this decision is affecting people's reproductive rights in this country. Look, I think when you know when you saw how we all took to the streets um, as a result of Roe v. Wade, it was incredible. It was very chilling for us all because you know we we are, we almost need to be constantly vigilant. There are co- there are many people who would still like to wind back um, the rights that Australians and Victorians have right now. Um, and I think Roe versus Wade just showed us and exposed the fact that this can happen. And it happened in America and it can certainly happen here in Victoria. I mean, it was only last term we saw a bill that was closely, though it was defeated, um, but it was about rolling back um, our abortion rights here. And on top of that, which is what my bill's about, you know, there were currently we still allow our public hospitals to refuse reproductive rights um, to to women and gender diverse people. Yeah, so could you tell us more about this bill that you've introduced? Currently, and I think Australia is quite unique in this, but um, public hospitals that are religious based, so these are fully funded public hospitals, but they come under the organisational structure of a religion, of a Catholic organisation. And I'm thinking about the Mercy, the Calvary and St Vincent's. Those hospitals currently refuse to provide contraception. Uh, they refuse to advise, provide <coughs> um, voluntary assisted dying and they refuse to, to provide abortion. And this is most acute at the Mercy hospitals which are also the main gynaecological and obstetrics hospitals for large parts of our cities. So people who go to those hospitals and just say there's a fetal abnormality or they're having a cesarean and they'd like a tubal ligation, they are refused those services. And I don't think we as a community, well, I... You know, I, I think I'm quite right in, in thinking that majority of us think publicly funded hospitals should provide the, serv- the legal services that are needed and wanted by the patients. And they shouldn't have a right to impose their own religious ideology on public patients. Right. Yes, exactly. And because, you know, not only is it being paid by taxpayers, but a lot of people can't 
don't have the luxury or the privilege of choosing where they receive um, health support and access health services from. So uh, a lot of people don't have the privilege to um, go see private um, health services um, in order to, yeah, receive contraception or support regarding their reproductive um, systems. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, you know, we've had circumstances where, um, you know, and, and for the most, mi- well, not mild, but important, so a woman go, is zoned to the mercy. She has a cesarean there. It's her, it's her third child, and she'd like a tubal ligation, which is very common. The doctor agrees with her and wants to provide it, but the hospital refuses to allow that doctor to provide that treatment that that patient wants and needs. So in many ways, the the hospitals imposing what they call their conscientious objection, I would call it their religious ideology, by them imposing on it, they actually deny the conscience of many of their doctors and other health practitioners. You know, we had a circumstance where a woman... Um, turned up at emergency at St Vincent's um, in a very tragic way. She was losing um, her pregnancy. She was losing her twins. Her doctor wanted to perform an emergency induction. Um, The hospital refused to allow him. He literally had to walk his patient across Victoria Parade to the Freeman, the Freemasons Hospital, to perform a life-saving operation. It was, that should not be allowed to happen. And I think when we, you know, when we think about Roe v. Wade, we must remember that these types of refusals are already happening here. And, you know, abortion and reproductive health and sexual health, hard enough to get as it is, particularly if you live in regional areas. But the fact that our public hospitals can deny those rights to people... um, is not in line with community opinion in the 21st century. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think that, you know, because we live here and not in the US, that we are lucky, and in some ways we are. It is very different Mm. here, but like you said, there are still large groups of people and um, portions of the population who don't have uh, easy access to... Um, contraception or safe access to abortions um, or, you know, community health services that that, um, are right for them. So it seems that this bill, you know, would would change a lot of lives. Um, um, Yeah. That's right. And I think it... it, it, And to me it goes to a really important point that um, I think that these hospitals are misusing our... um, our conscientious objection. Uh, so, because I don't think organisations can't really, in that in that legalistic way, have a have con have a conscience. They don't. Organisations don't think what they have is religious ideology, and they impose that on their patients and on the people that work in their hospitals. I have no, you know, I have no real problem with. Um, with doctors, uh, doctors and other health practitioners saying, look, I, I have a, a very strong religious belief. I have a very strong individual conscience and conscientious objection about certain procedures. 
Yeah, this this bill doesn't interfere with that. In fact, this bill probably says that you know those people who have a conscience that think that think that somebody should be provided with contraception or somebody should be provided with a tubal ligation or an abortion, that their consciences are being are being stymied by the current situation. So we're not affecting individuals in regards to this legislation only saying that corporations cannot impose their own ideology um, and refuse to allow uh, uh, health practitioners to perform services or provide treatments. Yeah, there's, there is something very interesting about that term, institutional conscience. And like you said, um, yeah. these are corporations, organisations, and more importantly, publicly funded health yeah. services. Um, <laughs> and it just seems... Um, yeah, it seems yeah. bizarre to be able to, to to use that word conscience in that way. And my understanding is this is this is almost unique to Australia. This just doesn't occur in other in in, in other publicly funded health services around the world. Um, it's yeah, it seems to be quite a unique situation here. You know, and we we know that access to um, abortion, to contraception, to sexual health, so much of it is still um, hindered by shame, by stigma, um, and, and, and also by geography. But having these types of um, corporate objections and these corporate consciences and this religious ideology in our publicly funded health system just furthers that stigma, mm. you know, just furthers that shame. And that uh, that needs to change, and I think it. it I would. I would really like to see this government stand up and say that a woman has a, a well, a woman or a gender diverse person has the right to access the treatment that is right for them, and that public that the hospitals that they that we all fund should not be allowed to make those decisions for them or for their health practitioners. Mm. Yeah, and we know that already a lot of um, women do have, you know, women, queer people, um, First Nations people have a hard time in these health services because a lot of the time they're not believed or, you know, especially when it comes to menstrual health as well, um, their um, symptoms aren't taken seriously. So it's just, like you said, another roadblock, another obstacle for a lot of these people Mm. to to face. And, And because of the, I think, the shame and the stigma that it perpetrates these, these, you know, corporate conscientious objections and these corporate refusals, um, it makes other doctors in regional areas uh, more nervous about providing things like medical abortion because they're worried that they will be um, black banned or ostracised by the local hospitals, many of which may also be religious hospitals. So it has this um, quite chilling effect, not just in those hospitals, but also outside in the rest of the community. And that is why I think this should be, this is an important step in ensuring that all of these services are available to all Victorians, wherever they live. Um, Yeah, that's... Uh, such an important point to make. Fiona, before we leave this morning, could you please tell us what is the current status of the bill and um, where to next? Well, the, it's, um, it's 
being debated uh, being debated tomorrow. So it, re- it will be debated tomorrow in the upper house. If it was to pass, which um, I can't say that I'm you know super confident because I've put up about eight private members bills over my time in Parliament, and none of them have passed in that in the first in the first lap. Yeah. Uh, most of them have eventually passed uh, by via a government bill or by other means. So I'm confident that this is starting a conversation. If the listeners wanted to help, there is a right to ref- right to refuse um, kind of campaign that we're just trying to let all MPs know that we think it is important um, that that publicly funded hospitals provide the services that the public want. Great. Well, um, yeah, just to repeat what you've just said, Fiona, if there, are any, is there if there's anyone out there who is interested in this campaign, um, uh, you know, please contact your MPs um, and talk to other people about it because that's, you know, one yeah. of the most effective ways to, to get this off the ground. Um, Fiona Patton, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, but I would just like to thank you for, for coming on the show and speaking to us about this bill and um, all the best uh, tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks for your time. That was great. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. So that was uh, Fiona Patton um, MP speaking to us about um, the bill that she introduced into state parliament last week, uh, no, two weeks ago, called the Health Legislation Amendment Conscientious Objection Bill um, that would like to make um, uh, access to abortion and reproductive services um, easier for uh, large groups of the population. Um, We'll be back right after this message. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Music lovers rejoice. The magical Sierra Ferrell returns for a headline tour this October. Bringing a band and her unique style of old-time bluegrass and country music, they will be joined by the one and only Johnny Fritz plus the local Isles in the Drip for a huge night of good times at Thornbury Theatre on October 13th. 
Sierra Feral Band also playing at Menian Town Hall 14th of October and out on the weekend at Seaworks Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated programme of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, next up, we will be speaking with a TAFE teacher at Swinburne. Um, so on Friday, Swinburne University took the extraordinary step of issuing a notice informing NTEU and AEU members that they would not be paid or offered work if they engaged in protected industrial action. Alexandra Mavridis is a TAFE teacher at Swinburne and an Australian Education Union member. She has taught across TAFE colleges, taught incarcerated Indigenous men and disabled prisoners and worked with international students. Um, and she's on the show this morning just to talk to us about her experience as a TAFE teacher in um, kind of the education industry. Uh, welcome to the show, Alexandra. Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you. Um, could you just maybe give our listeners a little bit of background on um, yourself and what you teach at Swinburne? Okay. So um, my teaching career has spanned over 40 years. Um, I originally um, have taught in the state government system in a secondary school. I was, I've been there for like over 30 years and, and my specialty area is I'm an art specialist as well as literacy. Um, I left the state system, I think it was the end of 2013, um, and from there, I transitioned into adult education. Um, currently, I work at Swinburne only. There was a time for the last three years where I've juggled lots of different um, professional teaching jobs because I was never able to get secure employment. Um, so, I yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to how to where to start. So currently, I'm. I'm at Swinburne and I am teaching 
mostly young people, but not not exclusively, in in a diploma of teacher education preparation, which is something I'm really passionate about because I guess I've sort of lived and breathed uh, education, yeah, pedagogy, very high up there for me. Yeah, um, and so you know, for the last. A uh, little while, uh, staff at Swinburne have been trying to negotiate better pay and working conditions with university management, um, especially after you know a drastic workload increase due to the pandemic um, yeah. and the related redundancies and cuts. What what has the experience been like for you? Oh, it's been really awful, actually. Um, so it's been frustrating because management are playing the typical power games that management does. My impression especially is that they any it's like a real business model, it's not an education model and mm. of course everything has to you know, have to be the funds there for everything. But in terms of um the negotiations, the pace, because I I'm in close contact with the um executive that in the sub branch at Swinburne what I hear about the process and what they're telling the staff in their group emails uh, are two different things. So they're manufactured, they're lying basically. They're not really being transparent. Things like um, for a very, very long time, the people uh, with real power were never present during bargaining meetings. Um, They've just been doing a lot of delaying tactics. Mm. And recently, well, not that recently, but not that long ago, we uh, went to a vote. They they got fed up in the middle of negotiations. They just suddenly said, well, we're not talking about this anymore. We're putting it to a vote. And surprise, surprise, I think it really shocked them. Um, The staff voted no, overwhelmingly. And um, this includes... Um, our esteemed colleague from the NTEU, which is the National Tertiary Education mm-hmm. Educators Union, I think. Oh, sorry, yeah. I don't yeah. Um, but anyway, so it was a really uh, united front and it was actually really empowering um, because for the longest time we've had a shitty government, lots of shitty government um and um, I guess they were sort of going with the same tactic, hoping that, you know, the draconian approach was going to work. And um, it was actually really exciting uh, for me because I've been a union member for 40 years and I've done all the hard yards anyway. Yeah, so, um, but, yeah. and you're an AEU member. Um, yeah. You know, and one of the best reasons to be in a union is that you can um, protest when your working conditions are, you know, getting worse and worse um, and you can get together and you can actually um, speak up against it and you should be protected if you do take any action. Um, You know, industrial action is meant to be protected. You know, Swinburne is taking this step to dock pay for people who are taking the stand. Uh, you know, yeah. what What do you have to say about that? Oh, it was just really shocking. Um, it was sort of harked back to 
to the Patrick Stevedore days. Um, you know, uh, honestly, it, I, when I read the, the announcement, I had to read it a few times because it's really sort of written in a very, not, not ambiguous, in some ways it felt very ambiguous, but the main thing is that it's like, well, if you, you know, these are the protected actions, but if you partake in any of them, we're basically uh, effectively locking you out. You're not going to be paid. Um, and um, that, that's just really shocking because I thought the whole point of protected action was that you're being protected. Um, it's obviously gone, you know, somewhere and being authorised because, as we all know, we can't take action anymore unless we, you know, get legal approval to do so. Um, yeah, look, so it, it's not very, um, what's the word? Conciliatory is not the right word, but... You know, from their behalf, it, it, it's... Um, it's it, not in it, good faith. No, not at all. Not yeah, at all. and, you know, they should be coming to the table for the conversation. Absolutely. But what they'll often do is, uh, I'm aware that they'll cancel meetings at the last minute, you mm. know, uh, stuff like that. But my, my understanding is, from speaking to people on the executive, is that we've... We've compromised on several points, um, and with them it's all or nothing. Yeah, and I think and you made a really good point earlier when you said, you know, universities are becoming kind of more and more corporate. Um, oh, absolutely. And that would have a lot to do with that as well. Yeah, yeah. And, like, they definitely used the COVID card um, because, you know, there was a drop in international students, and I'm not aware of all the figures of Swinburne because mm-hmm. at the time of transitioning from another um, case who makes, um, well, basically, they, I would say that they funded um, their operations from international students um, to a greater degree, but um, I don't believe that's the case with Swinburne. But regardless, yeah. we We've been doing a lot of... Uh, I'm basically working really long hours and not... and not. Uh, I'm, I'm basically working for free on many occasions. Yeah, and that's unacceptable. And, you know, despite the international student drop, uh, we do know the figures that the executives are earning, especially VCs at oh. the moment across Australia. So yeah. it's not really um, an excuse. No. no. Um, so there's... Snap action happening this morning, um, and people from the NTEU and the AEU from across um, Melbourne are coming to support Swinburne staff. Um, you know, how can more people support uh, Swinburne staff in this fight? Oh, <laughs> that's a curly one. How can they support us? Well, if anyone's free to come down and support the Stop Work Action, we're going to be. Um, I think it's 370 Little Lonsdale Street this morning uh, at the VU building. Um, so I believe um, we've got a, an esteemed speaker from our university. So we just want to uh, raise awareness um, about our plight because there hasn't actually been a lot of media attention on this very long process. Yeah. Um, We've been going through an EPA for a couple of years now. Um, yeah, so it'd be really good to... That would be terrific. 
Absolutely. Um, we encourage all our listeners, if they can, um, especially if you are involved with um, TAFE or universities, to get down um, today. We'll, we would, you know, it would be great for Swinburne staff to know that there's other staff in solidarity with them. Yeah, and the other thing is our students, because, um, for example, I notified my line manager um, that I wouldn't, I was going to partake in the industrial action and I noticed that they sent um, our student, my, my classes. Well, they haven't replaced me. The students are missing out now, so they just have to do it all on their own. And um, they haven't been honest. They've just said that I'm unable to teach. So as far as they know, I'm sick. But I'm not sick if anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, if they're listening right now. <laughs> um, and, you know... Um, I think if if our students were aware of our conditions, like really knew, um, you know, it'd be really good if they wrote to our management and said that they don't want to be taught by people who are being exploited to that degree and that they need to hurry up and come up with a, a decent offer that reflects, you know, real work, real, real cost of living and um, that could be very powerful because at the moment they're manipulating the students. As far as the students know, we're, we're really um, bad people. But the point is that teachers do have that um, duty of care in the back of their mind and we're always thinking about what the best for our students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah. the students are being disadvantaged as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's sort of like the staff and students are in the fight together. Yep. So. Uh, um, so, yeah, I think that um, if anybody can, please go down to the snap action this morning at VU on, was it Lonsdale Street? Yeah, Little Lonsdale. Little Lonsdale Street. Um, 370, I believe. 370 Little Lonsdale. That would be um, a great show of solidarity for um, Swinburne staff. Um, but that's all we have time for this morning, Alexandra. I really want to thank you for coming on air and talking about your experience. I think it's really important for people to hear from um, the staff that are actually going through what they're going through. So really appreciate you speaking with us this morning. You're very welcome. I hope everyone has a great day despite the rain. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye. So that was Alexandra Mavridis, a TAFE teacher at Swinburne, talking to us about Swinburne's decision to stand staff down for taking um, organised industrial action and the SNAP action organised this morning on Little Lonsdale Street at VU. Um, we will be right back with our next guests after this. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those, how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture 
of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to go to a track now just while we get our next guests set up in studio. Uh, this is a song by Nam-based uh, singer and songwriter Jala, and it's from their 2015 uh, EP, and it's called Hard Hold. Hard, hard hold, hard, hard hold, never got
you're back on Tuesday breakfast and uh, it's just clocked over to 8.07 a.m. I'm very lucky to be joined in the studio uh, with some in-person guests. It's always nice to have in-person guests, especially post-COVID. Uh, uh, so they're in to chat about What I Wish I Told You, which is an ex- exhibition currently on at Footscray Community Arts Centre and runs until the end of August. The show centres deaf voices, identity, language and culture, where empowered deaf storytellers draw on decolonizing strategies of truth-telling, provocation and self-representation to challenge artist colonization of deaf lives, bodies, language and knowledges with large-scale video projections. Claire Bridge and Shell DeStefano, both of the deaf uh, community and deaf allies and artists themselves, are the creators of this beautifully curated show and they join us live in the studio to discuss the exhibition. Thank you so much for joining us, Shell and Claire. Oh, it would help if I put your uh, microphones on, wouldn't it? <laughs> there we it's go. It's clear. Thanks, Genevieve. <laughs> um, alrighty. So. And I just want to say thanks as well. Um, I'm Shell and I've been working collaboratively with Claire on this project, who, which she's been leading. And it's about deaf empowerment, as you said before, Genevieve. And when we went to go and set it up, we thought we'd utilise, uh, firstly, three different spaces and we have one tripod set up, which does have multiple projections or three projections. And we have the videos of the storytellers, which are separately shown on the tripod, and then another visual for captions. We have one set up, which is vertical, and another screen as well, which shows some horizontal captions. So that's the general setup of the art pieces and the artwork. We also have some captions on the screens with the videos. There are multimedia visual displays and it's a representation of deaf voices. And for those voices to be, to be heard, those stories to be told, and it's very empowering. They really talk about having a site of resistance and being able to express their stories in Auslan. It's also a celebration of deafness and being deaf. Throughout this ex- exhibition, people are guided through that journey. We have two smaller rooms as well, one with a suitcase that has a projection. There's a little bit of a design to suit that projection. And having that on site and visually represented in that room, we then have two vertical TV screens which show a portrait view and they have the presenters or deaf storytellers. We have David Grant who is there on the day and has collected a group of videos. So you can see him being represented in that portrait view and telling those stories. And it's, it's really immersive. It's, it's amazing to watch. There's some fun storytelling. There's some deeper 
storytelling as well. There are a variety of topics including deaf culture, First Nations people, Muslim deaf people, Asian deaf people, people of colour. We have queer identifying deaf people, deaf blind people. So we have a really multicultural approach. We also have hearing people who do the voiceover for those pieces and they're really well matched to those artists. And they're not just interpreters who do the voiceover, we have professional voiceover artists and collaborative artists who work with us and Claire was working very closely in that space. So I'll hand it back to you, Genevieve and Claire. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible and, as you were um, saying, an immersive uh, exhibition with such a diverse array of um, people showcased. I did want to talk about, um, you know, the idea for this exhibition and obviously, you know, representing the deaf community and really showcasing uh deaf people in our art um, but how did the idea come about maybe we can start off with Shell and then go to Claire or yeah <laughs> yeah I actually will pass it over to Claire first I'll go next Claire I've already said my piece <laughs> thanks Shell so we we were really thinking about this in the very early days of the pandemic mm-hmm. and Melbourne was in such a a sudden and long lockdown and thinking about culturally how many people are isolated generally, mm-hmm. like there's a general feeling of isolation and separation um, and how that impacts our sense of distance and alienation from each other, which then, of course, causes even more um, or magnifies divisions. So one of the things that we we're thinking about is how can we bring people together and how can we really connect this community, this deaf community, especially during a time like this, And also thinking about, especially overseas, there were many people that were separated from each other um, and didn't have an opportunity to say what was needed to be said before people passed away. So we thought, what I wish I'd told you is a great prompt for people to respond really in any way they wanted. So we did a call out to community and friends and connections um, and really gave people agency to respond however they felt was right for them, whether that was a personal story, you know, from the past about someone that was an inspiration or someone that they needed to talk back to. Mm -hmm. So there might have been some challenges or conflicts or, you know, these stories cover so many topics, whether it's um, autist experiences um, or, you know, there, there can be stories like, you know, children being removed from deaf mothers And these kinds of things still happen. So this institutional or systemic autism as well. Uh, But also very inspiring stories about deaf pride and culture. So that's how it came about. And uh, Shell and I decided this was something that we would love to do together because we were actually studying together at the time, which was amazing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just so lucky and I felt so fortunate that Claire and I had the opportunity to be studying together and we already knew that we worked really well together. We had good collaboration between the two of us. We could communicate. So it was just an incredible experience. And I also felt that giving deaf people empowerment was really what we were looking at. As Claire said, you know, a lot of people were isolated and displaced. We had the colonisation of deaf people 
which we wanted to highlight. We wanted to encourage that resistance to that colonisation and encourage decolonisation. We thought about people who didn't have a home or a safe space to really consider their own ideologies, their their culture, uh, feeling whether or not we could create that space. Would it be a social space? And then from there we really thought, well, at the moment with so much displacement and separation and divide throughout the community, how do we create that centralised space where people can come together? And we're hoping that deaf clubs will start to emerge again. We previously had deaf clubs, but due to the decolonisation, they often were very dispersed and they had closures. And just recently, uh, when we were talking about the exhibition, we had actually a deaf club on the 23rd of July once we had opened up again and so many members of the community came and we had maybe 20 or 30 people who were live streaming and coming together as well um, via the use of technology and we saw many different deaf people and such a range of people who were there who were able to connect and tell their stories and it was really impactful so we thought with the exhibition that's, you know, the perfect idea is to explore some of those stories, exhibit those stories and that connection and it would just have such a profound impact on deaf people. We have some drawing art pieces as well, which are, which is the title obviously of the ex- exhibition, which is What I Wish I Told You. So we had an artist do some drawing for that. And it's just been amazing to see how many people have gotten involved and the empowering experience that everyone's going through and we're hoping for it to really continue and flourish from here. Wow, yeah. It seems like such um, a beautiful collaboration of community as well and especially after obviously the pandemic uh, having those kind of resources and art is such uh, important resource to rebuild that connection in community um, I wanted to talk about you know um, you mentioned the exhibition is prominently uh, large-scale projections um, why was this chosen as like the main uh, sort of communication or main sort of art um, format uh, within the exhibition um, and yeah what did you want it to kind of evoke? Well we chose that because it's you know such a strong visual medium and such a strong pl- visual platform with having life-size people being able to be displayed via that medium which is fantastic and having deaf people tell their stories in a life-size format so people can really connect in with their stories and their storytelling so they can have a look at somebody in their full human form and engage with their stories. And it feels like they're having a conversation with the person or it feels like they're really there with the person to better engage with them. And it really just shows proof how storytelling can impart experiences and for it to really be engaging for people so now we really are looking forward to creating that space or further creating a space for deaf people to come together claire i'll add to that too so one of the things that we've done in the show as shell's describing this tripod of big screens in the main gallery Mm. uh, we took the projections off the wall so they're then we've changed the way that um the artworks are viewed 
they are, they can be seen from either the front or the rear. So it's really very much in the round. And part of this was to emphasize um, sign language itself, which is three-dimensional and moving through space. So that's part of it. But also to really center physically these deaf people and deaf stories in gallery spaces where which have historically really excluded deaf community and not um, ha- have not been as accessible or maybe as inviting or as, or the kind of safe spaces where deaf people have felt they can participate and engage mm. actively. So this is about deaf people and deaf presences right in the middle of the gallery. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really want to talk about the title because I think it's such um, a beautiful title. Uh, obviously, it's called What I Wish I Told You. And I wanted to ask about why you chose this as the title um, of the exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. It just felt like such a right title for us because so many people oppress what it is they really want to say to people and oppress their own experiences. So a lot of people in our community have had regrets so they often say, oh, I'm too late, I've just missed the point, I really wish I had said this or I wish I had responded in this way. So people miss out due to having a fear of retaliating or having that resistance in that time. So this is about being able to say the right thing at the right time when you're intending on saying it and how that impacts people. So people haven't had the ability to respond how they wish they would have liked to respond to a certain situation. It could have been something that occurred, you know, 20 years ago, and now they have the opportunity to express it and to really think about those situations and show people that if they had another way to express it or if they had their time again, they would have said this, that or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I think, uh, you know, it hints at so many different facets of, you know, what's left untold, what's um, communicated in different ways. Um, So, yeah, I really, really love that title. Um, And also I wanted to touch on, you know, this exhibition is obviously about collaboration, um, collaborating with, you know, the deaf community and uh, deaf allies um, and also exploring, you know, a really diverse array of people um, to get involved. Um, You know, why was collaboration such an important part of the exhibition? Um, And, you know, how does... uh, how has this impacted your own individual practices um, within the exhibition? It's clear. Um, collaboration is a, a really amazing framework in which to work and especially with community it's so important to allow the space for different voices and different perspectives to emerge but also to inform each other and I think the arts um, is a field where you know the individual can be kind of um, uh, platformed or pedestaled Mm -hmm. and there's that tradition of you know the white male artist and and this kind of um yeah, culture around that which supports the individual. But this is also perhaps part of some of the problematics in our culture in general where we kind of highlight an individual and their 
you know, this one perspective or this one voice. So in this exhibition, collaboration itself is a really important framework in order to kind of shift uh, societal perspectives. And Mm -hmm. the deaf voices that are presented present perspectives that many hearing people or non-signing people may not have been um, aware of previously. And in that way that through story can connect to these experience in a very real and personal way. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of thing which touches your own life, which can help change the way that people behave and respond. So we kind of think about it in terms of like emergent strategies, a way to... Yeah, shift society through engaging and invitation. Yeah, I love that idea of invitation. Yeah, and Claire's exactly hit the nail on the head there and she's very right. It's about how we can ask people to go into introspection and think of how they can unpack themselves and their own experiences through viewing certain stories from the lens of another person and thinking, well, I never really thought about this that story is really resonating with me in in this sense and just then taking that into introspection and thinking about how they can unpack that for themselves through seeing other people's stories. So it's a lot around viewing different perspectives and then encouraging or inviting people to have a shift in their own perspective and then it can hopefully become more permanent after a certain time, having this shift in perspective and we have pioneers who have certainly shift perspectives for deaf people in the past and they've worked exceptionally hard at that and encouraged hearing people to have a shift in perspective so it's a matter of how we can work more collaboratively as a society to create that equity in our landscape and in our communities equity in communication as well so hopefully we can just have immediate access to what it is we require to communicate in our communities, whether that's Ozan or captioning. And it's, you know, not being seen as deaf people are a cost on society. We are actually, you know, should be seen as a return on value because what we can bring in everyday conversation and to society is, is valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just uh, because we do have to wrap up soon, um, I wanted to ask, you know, you've obviously both put so much uh, effort, time uh, and love into this project. And, you know, you've got members of the community and the public going through the exhibition now. What would you hope that they would get out of the show? Well, I'm really hoping that we can become a more permanent display and we can have an acquisition of that art and display our exhibition more permanently and have deaf artists, not just deaf artists but also deaf community members who are seen in these public spaces on a more permanent basis Mm. so that people in the future can certainly benefit from what they can learn from the deaf community and the deaf community can benefit from that permanency and, and having that deaf voice, that space to deliver their their deaf voices and deaf perspectives more solidified in the community rather than being on the outliers and not being able to really communicate and not given the opportunity to talk about their experiences of autism and their levels of oppression they face. So having spaces where they can express that so it can share the knowledge throughout the community would be ideal. But I'll hand it over to Claire. 
I'll add to on on the uh, topic of language as well that all of the stories are presented in Auslan, which is Australian mm. Sign Language. So there is such an emphasis in this on kind of sharing the richness of this language and the power of this language um, and the voice of the people who use this language. And it's not yet a nationally recognised language. It's mm. it's understood to be a community language. Um, but if it was recognised as a national language, the landscape would change in Australia. Not only would it be taught yeah. as English as a second language mm. in schools, which currently still needs to be much more supported federally uh, in order for that to be successful, but hearing and deaf people could use this national Australian sign language and we would have so much more accessibility and understanding of this community and it, it would be seen simply as another method of, of connecting with each other rather yeah. than a barrier and all of this hefty burden of, of organising all of these supports around it. Imagine if everyone had access to this language and took yeah. it up. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and just quickly before uh, we wrap up, where can people see the exhibition? Obviously, I mentioned Footscray Community Arts Centre, but for how long is it on? And um, yeah, how uh, can people access this exhibition? It's on at Footscray Community Arts Centre on now until August 28th. And we're actually going to tour uh, around Victoria to Hyphen Wodonga, then to mm -hmm. Artspace Realm, and next year in World uh, for World Pride 2023, we'll be in Willara, New South Wales. So there's quite a few opportunities for people to connect with the show. And we look forward to um, yeah, hearing what people think about it. Amazing. Yeah. And just to reiterate, the show is on until the 28th of August at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Well, thank you so much, Claire and Shell, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to talk about what I wish I'd told you um, and all things uh, about the exhibition. Um, it's been uh, absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. We've really enjoyed being here today and I'm just so appreciative that we were here to tell our story and I'm very much looking forward for people to come along and to see the ex exhibit. Yeah, I'd highly recommend uh, if you're in the Footscray area or if you're in the Melbourne area in general, go check it out. It sounds like an absolutely incredible uh, exhibition. Um, unfortunately, we're at the end of the show today. Um, as always, we'll podcast the show up on our Tuesday Breakfast website and uh, keep tuned. We've got Accent of Women coming up next.